Good morning. All right, take your time finding your seats. Free to... Hi, Brian. <laughs> Feel free to keep grabbing coffee and bagels. Um, my name is Alex Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Excited you're here. I'm really excited to preach this morning on our passage. We're continuing the series on 1 John. So it's a letter written by a guy named John. And if, you were, if you're new with us this morning, don't, it's okay. Don't worry. We're in the middle of it, but that's okay. It'll still be good. Um, or... You know, many of you have been coming every week through this series. This is our fifth week, and because it's Scripture, and Scripture can be really hard to read sometimes, some of us may feel really lost right now. So I want to begin by kind of giving a little bit of a recap of just kind of where we've come the last several weeks, and, and, and that'll set us up really well for our passage today. So 1 John is his little letter, 105 verses, and there's some circumstances that are going on, and I want to talk through three tests of faith. So there's a guy at Denver Seminary called uh, Craig Blomberg. He's a brilliant scholar. I got to study underneath him for a little while while I was down there. And he really helped me understand this letter by kind of breaking it up into three tests of faith. He says that this is, this is pretty much what John is talking about. Throughout this whole letter, these three tests of faith. These are the three things, the three markers of what it means to have true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so the first one is right living. Right living. So we've talked about this. Um, starting in, in chapter 1, verse 5, going through chapter 2, verse 6, right living. And that, all, all that means is, is how do we seek to obey God? How do we seek to live out our faith? And Brian did a really good job for a couple of weeks just to kind of really help us to focus on our sin, really. Like, what is our relationship with our sin? How do we treat it? Do we just accept it? Do we just say, oh, it's normal, or it's who I am, or, you know, it's, it's normal for the world? You know, or do we really look at the things in our life that need to change, things in our life that God wants to bring life to? So what, what is our behavior look like? How are we living? So that was the first one. The second test of faith is right relationship. Right relationship. We looked at this pretty in-depth last week, and this goes through from chapter 2, verse 7 through verse 17. And really, what this means is, is, do we love each other? Do we actually love each other? Do we love others well? Because God cares about people. God's heartbeat is for people. And so when we fail to love others, we're not living out our faith well. So this is huge. Jesus went way out of his way to, to tell us and to give us this command to actually love each other. And Brian, again, last week, really fleshed this out. What does that look like? How do you love people that are hard to love? When we have eyes wide open, when we see people for who they really are, can we still love them? Do we still go out of our way to try to love them, even though they smell funny, they look weird, maybe they get on our nerves? Maybe we look at people and, and, and just think immediately, oh, man, they do not deserve love at all. But God's heart still goes out for those people. His heart goes for everybody. So this is a test of faith. Do we love each other? Do we love each other well? Right relationship. And then the third test of faith that we're going to cover today is right belief. So John really fleshes these three things out over and over again throughout this book. So he actually goes through three cycles of these. So it may be helpful for you to know as we continue in this series to, to keep looking for these because John keeps coming back to them. He keeps cycling through them. So we're going to get into this, this third test of faith. And what does this mean from John's perspective? And so I want to... 
um, to start by just reading through our whole passage. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up on your phone or you can grab. We also have Bibles underneath the seats in front of you if you want to pull one out and follow along. We'll also have it on the screen, but I'll tell you, it's, it's going to be way more helpful if you have it in front of you as well. So, and I also want to do something a little bit different this morning. If you'd be willing or able, if you'd stand with me as we read, out of honor for God's word, I think there's something to be said about really putting honor to this, this word, this book, as we read this. So let's read this together, starting in verse 18 in chapter 2. This is John's word. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write this because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you, do, you don't need anybody to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and, has, and as that appointing, anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. You may be seated. So we're going to go into depth in that passage because there's a lot of things that are just confusing. <laughs> Scripture is often hard to read, but we're going to try to break it down and look into it and really see what John is trying to tell his community, but also what God is trying to speak to us this morning. So um, if you... If you're reading on your phone or in a Bible, I'm just going to ask you to keep your thumb there. Keep it open because um, something that you may notice, and I'll tell you forthright, is biblical writers don't really write the same way we do. They kind of jump around a lot, and their, their structure's a bit odd. So I'm going to be jumping around a little bit through this passage. Uh, that's kind of how they wrote. We, we tend to think linearly. I mean, how many here know how to write a five-paragraph essay? Like, from the dawn of time, that's how you're supposed to write an essay in elementary school, apparently. So a five-paragraph essay, we think an introduction, three supporting points, body points, and then a conclusion. It just, it's linear. It flows. It all makes sense. That's not always how the biblical writers write, especially John. John kind of gets a little crazy on us. So he jumps around. He's cyclical all over the place. So I think John has a very clear point and very clear points, but sometimes, like, we may find it spread out throughout this passage. So just keep that in mind as we go. But before we break this passage down, I want to tell you a story from my childhood. So I give you permission to laugh at my expense, because I was a weird kid. I really was. <laughs> so when I was in third grade, just, just try to picture this with me, okay? When I was in third grade, I had a friend, uh, one of my best friends, 
His name was Austin. He had two older brothers, and I didn't have any older siblings. So in my mind, maybe you can relate with this. In my mind, Austin, just, he just understood the world. Things made sense to him because he had older brothers who taught him about the world. So I always looked up to him because I'm like, man, how do you understand these things? I don't get it. I don't understand what, what's going on. He always seemed to. So I really I looked up to him a lot. I trusted him. And then one day in third grade, I kid you not, he convinced me that he was a secret agent for the U.S. government. I believed him. He like, it took him a little while to convince me, but he convinced me, all right, convinced me that he was a secret agent. And I was like, man, no, there's, there's no way this can be true, really? And, and finally, the curiosity got the best of me, and one day we're on the playground, and he comes over and nudges me. He's like, hey, Alex, do you want to be a secret agent too? And I'm a third grade boy. I'm like, uh, yeah, right away, please. Tell me what I need to do. So this is what he did. We're on the playground. He reaches down and grabs like the tiniest little rock, the tiniest little pebble that he can find. I don't even know how he found it. It was super, super small. And he said, Alex, give me your watch. I had a little digital watch. So he, he takes my watch, and he drops this little pebble, this little rock, right where the button kind of meets the watch face. I think it went in. I don't know. I just I remember it. And he handed my watch back. He said, okay, you're part of the secret agency. You're part of the US government now. I'm like, wait, what? That's it? He's like, yeah. And so this is your assignment. This is what you need to do. Every time you see a nuclear warhead flying through the air, you need to push this button on your watch to disarm it. And I was like, I, I was wide-eyed. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, and so I told him, like, what if, what if I don't see one? He's like, well, then there goes the country. <laughs> and I started crying. So I'm like, I don't want this responsibility. Take this out. No, I'm done. I'm done. He's like, no, I can't, I can't do anything about it. It's done. What's done is done. And I freaked out. And it didn't take me long to find out. He was just pulling my chain. But he convinced me of this. And I thought it was so unbelievably gullible. But then I also found out that he convinced a lot of people. He actually convinced a lot of people in my grade, a lot of my classmates, that he was a secret agent. So we all know people like this, right? We all know people in our lives that are just kind of the natural born leaders. They kind of exude this confidence. They speak very clearly. They're convincing. And it doesn't matter what they're saying. They're going to get you to follow them. We know people like that, the natural-born leaders. And whether they say what they're saying is right or wrong, they're going to get people's trust, and they're going to sway people one way or the other. So that is what's happening a little bit in this passage. As we come to this letter, John, this is what he's dealing with. John's community, he's dealing with people that have risen up in the community who are claiming that they have a secret knowledge, something that's special, a different teaching so they start teaching something that John actually draws a line in the sand and says, no, this isn't, this isn't wrong. This is false. You're teaching things that aren't true. But they raise up uh, within the community, and they start leaving the community, taking people with them. So there's this schism happening, and John is writing this letter in large part to draw attention to that and say, look, beware of these people, because they're teaching things that are just flat out wrong. I mean, it's gone beyond the part where it's just a different perspective on the same thing. It, what they're teaching is directly contrary to what we've been teaching you. And it's wrong, and they're leaving the community. So that's what's going on here. And especially when we get to this part of our passage, that's what John is directly dealing with. So the big idea, I'm just going to give it to you up front, the big idea in this passage that we're wrestling with today is that truth matters. Truth really does matter. It's important. I'll say it again. Truth 
matters. Last week, like I said, Brian hit hard on love because the passage directly before this talks so much about love. What does it mean to love one, each, one, one another? To love each other with God's love, to, to love radically, unapologetically, people who desperately need it. And then this week, we're getting just to the next part of this section, and John shifts to truth. And really, truth is kind of, the, I mean, think about it like a coin. There's two sides to a coin. In this instance, one is love, one is truth. They go together. They have to go together. And Jesus himself gives us this, this example. So one of my favorite passages, I've just been going through this with the students as well recently, is John 1.14. John 1.14. So this is, again, same writer. This is in his gospel. John writes, we have seen his glory. This is Jesus. We've seen Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full. 100% grace, 100% truth, all the time. That's how Jesus lived. That's how he walked. That's how he treated people. It wasn't sometimes love and then sometimes truth, or it wasn't a lot of love, like 75% love and 25% truth. It was all, or it was both, fully, at the same time, all the time. And so that is our goal. So truth is important. Truth matters. So John, who just has gone so in-depth on what does it mean to love people, is now coming back to truth as well, saying they go together. And ultimately what we see, verse 25, is he reminds his hearers, he reminds his listeners, look, and this is what he promised us. This is what Jesus promised us, eternal life. He reminds them that because that's, what it's, that's what's at stake here. These people that have risen up and started teaching something false and have left the community and taken people with them, they're forfeiting the eternal life that Jesus prophet, or promised them. So eternal life is at stake. Truth matters because our eternal destinies matter. So I want to be clear here, too, at this point. As, as we dive into truth, I want to say what John is not saying. John is not saying the truth is the only thing that matters. Sometimes we can be really good at looking at people and judging other people's faith based on what they believe. Oh, will you believe this? Wow, you're much less of a Christian than I am. Or, you know, we, we, we put people in categories based on what they believe. That's not what he's saying here. He's also not saying that you have to have all your beliefs correct and lined up in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying either. In fact, he's talking about a very specific truth in this passage. So I want to read a quote to you. We've probably used it here before. But it's from St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you pronounce it. It's a really good quote. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. And I want to focus in the first part of that. It's in essentials, things that really matter, things that are absolutely essential, John is willing to draw a line in the sand and say, we have to have unity here. We have to. But then non-essentials, there are plenty of non-essentials in the Bible, in our faith, things that you can have different perspectives on and still be a Bible-believing Christian. You can still do that. So John is coming up against an essential here where he needs to draw a line in the sand. So just to, to give you an example, later today, later this morning, we're going to take communion as a body. It's something we, we strive to do once a month. There are a lot of different perspectives and viewpoints on communion, on what it is. So for example, the Catholic Church for a very long time, their viewpoint, their belief of communion is that the, the bread 
and the wine, we don't drink wine there, here though, um, the bread and the wine though, they believe that it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. When the priest prays over it, it literally becomes his flesh and blood, even though it still looks like bread and wine. That's what they believe. And so when they eat, they're literally eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Christ. We don't believe that here. Um, and many Protestant denominations actually lean towards symbolism, that essentially the bread and the wine are symbols for what Jesus ultimately did on the cross, right? Jesus held up the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you as a symbol for what he was going to do on the cross, that his body was literally going to be broken. And each time Jesus says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So that's, that's the way we come at it. We, we strive to, to look at it as a very important symbol, but as a, as a tool to be used to help us to remember what Jesus did on the cross. But that's an example of a non-essential, right? People have different viewpoints on that. It doesn't mean that you're a Christian or you're not, or it doesn't mean that you're more spiritual or you're not. It's a non-essential because you can, you can find support for both in Scripture. And there are a lot of things like that. But John is coming at an essential and in this context, especially we see it in verse 22, in this context, the essential truth that John is drawing his line in the sand is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God, become human, who died on the cross for our sins. In 22, he says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that truth, that Jesus is is the Christ. That's where he's drawing the line in the sand. So we see, he kind of alludes to it, these false teachers, these people that have been rising up and teaching something false, they're actually teaching something different about Jesus. And we don't necessarily know exactly what, but it was probably, more than likely, they were teaching that Jesus either wasn't fully God, that he was just a human being, or they were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully human, that it just seemed like he was a human being. And so John's drawing a hard line in the sand and says, no, 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 no. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And he's drawing a line in the sand. This is truth. So truth matters, and eternal life is at stake. And if we get into his passage, I'm going to start jumping around now. So, so be ready with your, with your Bibles, just if you can follow along, because it, it might be a little confusing. But this is what John says. The first point that I think he makes is, look, because truth matters, we have to beware of the antichrists. And if you're new here, you may be super weirded out right now, because that's a weird word, and you're not alone. Many Christians are really weirded out by this word as well. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm going to break it down a little bit and make a little bit more sense of it, but, so, so stay with me. But he says, beware of the antichrists. So we see this in verse 18 in particular. It says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. He says this again in verse 26. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. He's saying, look, these people are trying to deceive you. They're trying to lead you astray. And he's using a very strong term to talk about them, Antichrist. And so really, I want to make sure we understand this from John's perspective, because sometimes when we hear the word antichrist, we immediately go to this big, evil, eschatological figure in the future that's going to destroy everything. And John is being very careful about that. He's saying, look, okay, you've heard that, yes, the antichrist is coming, but I don't want you to focus on that right now. 
Okay, don't, don't focus on that. It's not as important. That's going to be obvious. Okay, that'll, that'll take care of itself. What I want you to focus on is that there are many antichrists here and now that are trying to deceive you. There are many. So that's one thing that we look at in John. The way he's using this word is that there are many antichrists here and now. And unfortunately, I think Christians, we, we focus too much on the big antichrist in the future. Whether we think about it and then we're like, oh, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to think about it. I'm going to ignore it. Or there's plenty of Christians out there that will spend way too much time trying to figure out exactly who that Antichrist is. If you do a quick YouTube search, you can find a ton of videos. Let's take a look at this. You can find a ton of videos of people arguing who the Antichrist is. Pretty much every president is argued to be the Antichrist, right? Trump, Obama is a big one. Um, Hillary Clinton even, she's not president, but she's been argued to be the Antichrist. Both Bushes have been argued to be the Antichrist. And many other presidents throughout U.S. history have been argued to be the Antichrist. We got videos to prove it, right? No, they don't do a very good job of proving it. <laughs> Pretty much every pope has been argued at, at one point or another to be the Antichrist or the big false prophet that we read about in Revelation. There's some funny ones. Prince Charles. People have accused Prince Charles of being the Antichrist. And my favorite, I, I don't know why it's my favorite, I think it's funny. Bill Gates is up here. There's a video of Bill Gates. People have accused Bill Gates of being the Antichrist. And I, I just think we're missing the point when we try to do that. We're just missing the point because John, especially in this passage, he's trying to draw their attention away from the future and say, look, look, there are people here and now in your midst. You know them that are trying to deceive you. These false teachers that have risen up, the community knew them, probably by name. So he's saying, look, Look here and now. And if we really boil it down, the way that, that John uses this term, an antichrist, is, it's nothing more than someone who is simply anti the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's how he uses the word. Someone who is anti the person of Jesus Christ. That's an antichrist. We see in verse 22 and 23, same, same place. He says, who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. That's how he defines it. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, specifically if you're, if you're a Christian or someone that claims to be a Christian, then he's using this very, very strong term. He says that, that's, that qualifies you of being an Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. And so for us, what does this mean for us today? Because, I mean, there's a lot going on in, in this passage um, in John's community thousands of years ago. But what does this mean for us? I think that in the same way, we are called to be aware of the false messages in our culture. There's a ton of voices, okay? There's a ton of voices, a ton of sources for false messages. But I think we need to be aware of the false messages that we hear and be aware of them. So one big one that... that I know everybody here is aware of, is tolerance. And I'm going to be careful with this because I think people who really push tolerance, they mean well, of course. But I think it's a little bit misguided because the way that we have, as a world, as a culture, have, have kind of defined tolerance is you have to accept the truth in whatever someone else believes. You have to accept it as being equally true as whatever you believe. Or else you're closed-minded. Or else you're intolerant. And, I mean, that's just not a very good definition. The word tolerance in and of itself means just simply to put up with. That's all it means. We, we do that pretty well. We just put up with it. 
We don't have to agree with it, though. We don't have to say that, yeah, whatever you believe is, is, is just as true as what I believe. We don't have to say that. Because, again, truth matters. There are plenty of things that people will put, draw a line in the sand, right? There are people that will draw a line in the sand and say, sweet and low is not sugar. It is not a sweetener. You can't use it. Don't substitute it. We're very adamant about certain things, even little things like that. I've, I've been around people that are so adamant, like, Diet Coke is not good for you. Diet Coke is worse than regular Coke. They're go, like, they'll go on this really long tangent, this long tirade. But truth matters. Not everything is equally true. That's a false message. It really is. Another one that I hear regularly, you may have heard it too. All religions basically teach the same thing, don't they? The answer is no, they don't. If you've said that, I'm going to ask you to do some research. Or if you've heard people say that, just ask them to do some research. Because if you actually study other religions, they teach wildly different things. There's absolutely some overlap, of course. But by and large, they teach very, 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 very different things. If you ever want to talk about it, I would be happy to, because I'm a nerd and I love to talk about other religions and kind of how all that works. But, but that's just false. All religions teach the same thing? No. If you say that to any devout person of, from any religion who knows their stuff, they're going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Another one that I hear Christians say every so often, and this one, this one really starts to bother me, is when people say, Jesus is my way to God. It doesn't have to be everybody else's way. Jesus is just my way to God. That one bothers me precisely because if you say that, you don't really know who Jesus is. Let's look at something that Jesus himself said. John, same author, writes this in his gospel. John 14, <coughs> verses 6 through 7. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, then you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, look... I'm the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one go, comes to God except through me. Jesus himself said that. In other places in Scripture, he says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God. So when someone says, Jesus is only my way, I don't, I don't know if they really know what Jesus said, if they, don't, if they really know who Jesus was and how he carried himself. Because Jesus, again, draws a line in the sand and says, I'm the only way. If you want God, I'm, I am it. I am the way. Another analogy that I've heard, um, maybe you've heard this analogy, is that all these other religions, all religions are basically different paths that kind of go up the same mountain. God's at the top of the mountain, and there's tons of different trails, tons of different paths just to get to the top. Those are all different religions. It doesn't work. That breaks down. Especially if we want to take this book seriously, if we follow Jesus and claim to be a Christian, it breaks down because this book tells us that all of the paths are deadly. They're impossible. You cannot get to the top. And God made a way. He came down the mountain in the form of Jesus Christ in order that we could get to the top with him, that he would take us back up to the top. It doesn't work. Many people have tried to get God without Jesus. Many people have. And it doesn't work. In our passage, verse 23, John reiterates what Jesus said. He says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Different language, same concept. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You can substitute the word God for Father there, just a general concept of God. You cannot get God without Jesus. You can't. You can try, but it's not going to work. How can you have a relationship? Let me ask this question. How can you have a relationship with the Father if you reject the one that he sent to make that relationship possible? God sent Jesus to make that relationship possible. You cannot have that relationship if you reject Jesus. You can't. That's the line that we draw in the sand. It's just impossible. It won't happen. So with this, with this whole topic of the Antichrist and, and the many Antichrists, these people, these messages that are trying to lead us astray, that can lead us astray, I want to be really careful with this point because sometimes our tendency as Christians is to look outward and say, oh, that, the threat is out there. The threat is out there. So we got to be careful and protect, us, protect ourselves from what's out there. But that's not what John is saying. Because John, again, he's calling, the people that he's calling antichrists are not just the random people in the world that don't believe in Jesus. The people he's calling antichrists are the people that claim to be Christians, who rose up within the community claiming some secret teaching, some real teaching, real gospel, and then they left. He's warning them about a threat from within. So I think same thing for us. The threat isn't necessarily out there. The threat isn't the messages out there. The threat is when we as Christians, when we as people in the church begin to accept these messages and incorporate, the, incorporate them into the way we believe. That's the threat. So when, when I hear Christians say, Jesus is just my way to God, people can have their, their way. That's okay, that works. It drives me crazy because I'm like, you really don't know Jesus and you could be leading people astray. You could be convincing people with something that sounds really nice, that sounds really open, but you could be convincing people to put their trust in something that is not Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can give us eternal life. So I think that's John's first major point. He's beware of the Antichrist. Beware of those messages that could distort the way you view Jesus. Beware of that. His second point is a lot more encouraging. His second point, and and these last two are going to go a lot quicker than the first one, I promise. (laughs) The second point that I think he says is, is you have the Holy Spirit. Truth matters, which is why you have the Holy Spirit. God knows, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to live with us, to walk with us, to guide us into truth. So in verse 20, he uses the word anointing. In verse 20, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, because the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, he says, as for you, same thing, the anointing you received from Jesus remains in you, and you don't, you don't need anybody to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not a counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So there's some fun wordplay here. John actually has some fun with this. The word anointing is actually in the Greek, it's chrisma. Chrisma, which is very similar to Christ. Christ is, is a Greek word that means the anointed one. They use that to talk about the Messiah. So Christ is a title. It's not Jesus' last name. It's a title saying he is the Messiah. And the, the anointed one is the one who gives the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he gives it to every single person that believes in him. 
Every single person that believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit. Every single one of you, if you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit that lives in you and guides you and walks with you, whether you realize it or not. And that should be encouraging. John's encouraging his people. He's like, look, the false teachers are rising up, and they're saying they've got something special. They've got some special anointing, some special teaching, and so you have to listen to me in order to really understand Jesus or really understand the gospel. John fights that by saying, look, that's not what we believe. Jesus himself told us who the Holy Spirit was. I want to go back to John's gospel again, John 16, 13 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So Jesus, again, he's looking, telling them the Holy Spirit's coming and it's coming for all of you and one of his jobs is to help you know the truth, to help guide you into truth. And unfortunately, I see this happen so much, even in my own life, there's been plenty of stages in my own life where we, we tend to walk through life as if we don't have the Holy Spirit. We don't realize that the Holy Spirit lives in us and walks with us every single day, every single moment. And therefore, sometimes we don't rest on the Holy Spirit. It's like if I were to put, slip $1,000 into your back pocket somehow, and you were just to walk around as if you were broke. We have the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to guide us. Let's lean on the Holy Spirit. Let's trust and know that, that God is with us every single moment of every single day, and he will guide us and lead us into truth. He'll help us to understand what we're reading. He'll help us as a community understand truth. And then John's last point, I think he, he makes this pretty clear as well, is that truth matters because we're in the end times. We are in the last days. He says it multiple times in verse 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour Last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, this is how we know it is the last hour. And then he references eternal life, something else that's supposed to come in the future. And then in verse 28, as motivation for them to continue in truth, he says, and now, dear children, continue in Jesus so that when he appears, his second coming, when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Truth matters because we, we live in the last days. The first verse and the last verse of this passage, he, he's using this as bookends to tell us this. We're living in the last days. The early church, I don't know if we think about this enough, the early church, they lived and expected Jesus to come back at any moment. At any moment. I think probably because he hasn't come back in 2,000 years, we've gotten really relaxed. We've really relaxed, right? But they expected him to come back at any moment, and he still could. He still could come back at any moment. If we understand, I mean, Scripture as a whole, if we take it as a whole, it tells us that, that with Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension in heaven, that began the last days, the end times. So we're living in the end times we have for 2,000 years. But the end of the end times hasn't come yet. That's when Jesus returns again. And he's using this as motivation, saying, look, are you going to be ready? If Jesus were to come back today, would you be ready? Specifically in what you believe. Because our belief about Jesus himself 
matters. It does. Eternal life is at stake. You know, I think about as a kid, I remember the first time my parents let me stay home alone, and it's kind of exciting. Like, you kind of get this, this rush of freedom. I don't know if you remember that, the first day your parents let you home, just stay home alone while they went and did something else. And you're like, sweet, I don't have to eat in the kitchen. I can watch TV and blare it as loud as I want. I can do all, you know, X, Y, and Z, I can just have fun. But then when you get a text or something or when you get a, a phone call saying, okay, your parents are coming home in like 10 minutes. Hey, honey, we'll be home in 10 minutes. Then you kind of freak out a little bit. You're like, okay, uh, <laughs> what do I need to put back? What do I need to get in order for them to come back so I don't get in trouble? I'm not saying that we're going to be in trouble, but what I'm saying ultimately is that Jesus can still come back at any moment. And what we believe specifically about him, about the essentials, matters. It does. So I want to finish with this. Have we become complacent? I want us to ask this question honestly. Have we become complacent or apathetic about truth? Do we kind of shrug our, shrug our shoulders and be like, oh, I don't really know, I don't really care, I just want to do my thing? Or do we actually think through the things that we have accepted to be true about the world, about God, about each other? Do we analyze the things we've accepted to be true to take inventory of them and to see and put them up against Scripture and say, Honestly to God, if there's anything that I believe that is wrong, that is misleading, that is not leading me into truth, please help me to see that. Help me to understand that. Do we come together as a body, as a church, to grow in truth together? Do we come to each other and say, hey, you know what, I've seen the world like this for so long. I've perceived this to be true. What do you think? From, from a biblical pr perspective, do you think that's okay? Do you think that's true? Do you, do you disagree with me? Do we do that? Life groups are an incredible opportunity to do that, to wrestle with what we've accepted to be true. Because I think many of us have just accepted things to be true without ever really analyzing them, without ever really testing them. And I say this for every single person, to take inventory of the things that we have believed, the things that we've trusted. Are we ready for Christ to come back? Do we really put our trust in him and what he did on the cross? That's what this all boils down to that God became a human being in Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to pay the price for our sins on the cross, to rise again on the third day so that we can have new life, eternal life in him. That's what this all boils down to. If we don't put our trust in Jesus, we don't get God. We're going to finish this morning with communion. Like I said, um, Communion is such a great way to remember this event. Jesus gave us this practice 2,000 years ago to remember what he did on the cross. In the upper room, when he's sitting with his disciples, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. It was a sign of what was to come on the cross. And he says, take and eat. And then he takes the cup of wine. We got, we got grape juice for you this morning takes the cup of wine and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Again, to symbolize, symbolize what was going to happen on the cross, his gruesome death for our sake. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And as we continue to do this, 2,000 years later, as, as his followers, as his church, I just want to call us to, to take time to remember that, to reflect a little bit, reflect on whether we've really put our trust in Jesus 
whether we really believe and truly believe that he is fully God, fully man, that what he did on the cross is fully covers us in our sin, that his love for us is greater than anything we could possibly imagine. I'm going to ask you to reflect on that um, as you come up and take the elements. If you can, just to uh, help with congestion, if you can go out the sides, down the walls to grab and then go back to your seat through the middle, that would be great. But let me pray for this this morning.